Hi, welcome to Pitt Town Church. We are so glad that you're listening to this podcast. We pray that this sermon encourages you in your walk with Jesus. If you would like more information, check out our website at www.pitttownchurch.com. We're going to open up God's Word now. And we're reading from Ephesians 2, uh, verse 11 to 22. So then, remember that at one time you were Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcised, by those called the circumcised, which is done in the flesh by human hands. At that time you were without the Messiah, excluded from the citizenship of Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were far away have been brought near by the blood of the Messiah, for he is our peace who made both groups one and tore down the dividing wall of hostility. In his flesh he made of no effect the law consisting of commands and expressed in regulations, so that he might create in himself one new man from the two, resulting in peace. He did this so that he might reconcile both to God in one body through the cross and put the hostility to death by it. When the Messiah came, he proclaimed the good news of peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access by one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. The whole building being put together by him, grows into a holy sanctuary in the Lord. You also are being built together for God's dwelling in the Spirit. Well, good evening, everyone. It's great to see you all here tonight. Let me, uh, let me lead us in prayer. Heavenly Father, we ask now as we come to look at your word that you would help us that you would teach us, that you would guide us as we look at this um, relatively tricky passage. Father, help us to understand what you have said. Help us to understand what it means. And Father, help us to understand what it means for us. And Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there are some moments in life where you know that this is just where you're supposed to be. There are some things, perhaps, places that you might go, things you might do where you just feel like, yes, this is what I was made for. Whether it's, you know, you find some hobby that you just love and whenever you run or cycle or paint or draw or play an instrument or something, you just feel like, yes, this is, this is my thing. Or you have some friends, perhaps people, that when you're around them, you just feel like, yeah, man, these are my people. This is where I belong. This is, this is my place. And you feel it and you know it. Maybe it's, you know, like, perhaps not school, but maybe a subject at school that you just love. Or at uni, maybe not uni, but a subject that you're just like, yeah, this topic, this little part this is my thing. I'm good at it. I like it. I can do it. It feels like it's, it, like it's mine. And then maybe you have other things where it's like the rest of school, 
the rest of uni, everything about it is not what I want to do. I don't like it. It's not my place. These aren't my people. I don't enjoy being here. I don't enjoy doing this. Maybe it's work, like your job. Like, I don't like this job. I just do it. These aren't my people. I don't feel thrilled to go. I just have to go because I know I have to go. But I don't like it. And this isn't where I belong. This isn't my people. This is not what I was, what I was made for. Maybe there are people that you're with, maybe even your friends, and you just feel like these are not my people. They're my friends. They're who I hang out with. But I don't, I don't feel like I belong. I don't feel like these are mine. And perhaps you, you look at others and they have these things. They have maybe a family where they all you know, love each other and spend time together and love being together. And you're just like, man, I would love to have that. But, but I don't. That's, that's just not what my family's like. Or maybe you'd love to have a job that you liked going to or you want to just leave school as soon as possible to go do other things that you enjoy more. Or perhaps even you, you look in at other people and they've got just like the friendship group that they hang out with and they love being with. It's like a sitcom. They do everything with each other and it looks fun and they, it's great. And you don't have that. You don't have a friendship group like that where you feel like these are my people, but you look in on it and you just wish, man, you just wish that you could and you just wish that you had that. And maybe you're here today at church and you wouldn't, maybe you would describe yourself as someone who is on the outside when it comes to God and God's stuff. You're not on the inside, but you feel as though you're on the outside looking in, interested, uh, intrigued but you feel, you know, you're on the outside. And maybe you're here and you've been at church forever, been at this church forever, perhaps your whole life you've been in church, but you still just don't feel like yet you belong. And you've been here forever and you know everyone, but you still just don't feel like you've found your people. You still feel a bit like you're on the outside. You feel a bit, maybe even lonely and lost, even here at church even with all the people that you know. And if that's you, then hopefully tonight this passage will give you some encouragement and might even help you to see things from a slightly different perspective that might help you to persevere. Because what we're going to look at tonight from Ephesians chapter 2, we're going to see the consequences of being excluded and on the outside when it comes to God stuff. And then we're going to see what God has done about it, what he has done to solve that problem and some of the surprising consequences that come from that. Or if not surprising, at least maybe some things that you might not have been expecting. So we're in Ephesians chapter 2 and we begin our third vital sign this week, the orange prayerfully gather around God's word. The first vital sign was faithfully follow Jesus, the coconut, and then the second one was the pineapple, gospel spreader. And this week we're talking about the gathering part. Next week we're going to talk about the Bible and prayer bit but this week we're kind of zeroing in on gathering. And here's what we're going to see in particular. We're going to see that disciples gather regularly as family 
to serve one another. We gather regularly as family to serve one another. So we're jumping in halfway through Ephesians chapter 2, but just to make sure we know where we are, the first half of Ephesians 2, the first 10 verses, Paul kind of flashes back in time to think about what was it like before Jesus. And he says what it was like was we were dead in our sin, but that in Jesus he has made us alive through faith by grace. And so then we are then to go and do good works that God has prepared in advance for us to walk in. And he just kind of slips in there, just a little bit of God is totally in control of all things. We talked about this a couple of weeks ago, that God is sovereign and in control of everything. But here, he just sort of like casually puts it in. This is Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10. He says, For we are his creation, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time so that we should walk in them. What a verse, right? Every good thing that you do, God had prepared it in advance for you to walk in. Think about that. Every good thing you do. That's an amazing verse. And we wrestled with that two weeks ago, so we're not going to jump in it here. We're going to just like move on, but what a verse. So from verse 11, Paul then flashes back again to show what salvation means, this time from a slightly different angle. This time he's talking about Jews and Gentiles. Now, most of us in this room are probably not Jewish. Some of us might be, but I I would guess most of us are not Jewish. We don't come from a Jewish heritage. And so in the way that the Bible talks, we're Gentiles. If you're not a Jew, then you're a Gentile. That's just, they're the only two options. And what we're talking about here is what it means to be a Gentile. And Paul starts and he outlines five disadvantages to being a Gentile. So verse 11, he says, so then remember that at one time you were Gentiles in the flesh. That is, you were Jew, you were not Jewish. You were Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcised by those called the circumcised, which is done in the flesh by human hands. At that time, you were without the Messiah, excluded from the citizenship of Israel, foreigners to the covenants of promise, without hope and without God in the world. That's a pretty bleak diagnosis. That's five downsides. Without the Messiah, excluded from being included in God's people, God's promises weren't for you, there was no hope for you, and you didn't and you couldn't know God. That's what it means to be a Gentile. So you were Christless, homeless, promiseless, hopeless, and godless. That's pretty bleak. This is, this is the party that you so desperately wanted to be invited to and wanted to go to, but you weren't. And you're just like at home by yourself or like walking past, looking in the window, seeing everyone having a great time, but you're excluded. This is seeing the pictures on Instagram and 
Facebook about the great time everyone else was having, but that you weren't invited to, you're just at home, like lonely and depressed. This is everyone being away on an amazing holiday while you're just at school, back at the office, being yelled at by your boss for not attaching a cover sheet to your TPS report. This is everyone else laughing at an inside joke where you just had to be there and you weren't. And it just reminds you that you are on the outside and excluded and not, not a part of it. This is that. All that could have been ours is not because we're Gentiles. And so then can you imagine what it would have felt like for a group of Gentiles somewhere in Ephesus to then have been had this next sentence read out. Verse 13, Paul writes, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were far away have been brought near by the blood of the Messiah. We who were far away have been brought near. We who were left out in the cold and in the rain have been brought in to where it's warm. We've been brought near by the blood of the, of the Messiah, <clears throat> which is a shorthand way to say Jesus' crucifixion and his resurrection for us. Through the cross, we've been reconciled. Now, you, you know what it means to have two people be reconciled. It means that there were two people, or two groups, and they were not friends, enemies, something had happened, and they were not on the same page. But then something happens, something's done, and the enemies then become friends again, and they're reconciled. That's what it means. And here, Paul says, through the cross, we've been reconciled. Reconciled to God, yes, but surprisingly, that's not where Paul goes. He says, we've been reconciled in Jesus to each other. There's a very big deal made in the book of Ephesians about this Jew-Gentile thing. And you could read Ephesians and not notice it at all because we're not very attuned to this kind of thing. But let me show you what I mean. If you have your own um, Bible or your own device, flick back to chapter 1, Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11, and we'll see it there. Ephesians 1, verse 11, Paul writes, we have also received an inheritance in him, predestined according to the purpose of the one who works out everything in agreement with the decision of his will, so that we who had already put our hope in the Messiah might bring praise to his glory. We who had already put our hope in Jesus, we who had first put our hope in Jesus, that's the Jewish people. Right? It all started in Jerusalem, in the book of Acts, started with the Jews putting their trust in Jesus, and then it kind of rippled out from there. But then verse 13, he says, when you heard the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and when you believed in him, you were also sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. All right, verse 11 and 12, 
we, verse 13, you. We, Jews, you, Gentiles. And this kind of this Jew, Gentile, you, us thing sort of bubbles along under the surface of the book in chapter 1 and chapter 2 and then explodes in this bit here in verses 11 to 22 because, yes, we've been brought near, but we've also been brought together. Verse 14 is a big title verse. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14, for he is our peace. Jesus is our peace. And as far as I can tell, there's nowhere else in the Bible that says Jesus is our peace. It's a strange, it's a strange phrase. It's not that through him we have peace, although that's true. And it's not that he has brought peace, although that's true. It's that he himself is our peace. That's a very strange idea. When you are joined together with him in Jesus, he is the source and the context and the content of our peace. It's a very strange idea. Verses 14 to 18 is a very complicated section. So we're just, let's step through it carefully so we can understand what Paul is trying to say. So he opens with this title, Jesus is our peace. And then he says three things about that. The first thing is he says, Jesus has made both groups one. That is Jews, Gentiles have been reconciled to each other, made one. And then he says that Jesus tore down the dividing wall of hostility. Uh, there was a separation between Gentiles and Jews. We saw that, talked about that in verse 11. Gentiles were excluded from being included in God's people. They were, you know, God's promises weren't for them. They were foreigners of the covenant of promise. Being Jewish basically meant to be different from the Gentiles. It meant not associating with them. And Paul calls it here the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. This is an image that he's using from the Jerusalem temple. The temple complex in Jerusalem was massive, right? It's hard to picture just how big it was. It was, the whole thing was almost 35 acres. Now, you might not, that might not mean much to you. If you can imagine like an NRL football field, then the temple complex was four football fields wide and five football fields long. It's huge. And it was essentially a bunch of concentric circles. In the middle, you had what was called the Holy of Holies or the most holy place. And that was the place that only the high priest was allowed to go only once a year. Then outside that, you had the bit where the priests were allowed to go. And outside that was the bit where only the Jewish men were allowed to go. Outside that was the bit that only the Jewish women were allowed to go. And then outside that was the bit called the court of the Gentiles. That was where the Gentiles were allowed to go. And the whole thing was designed, structured to keep you out. Whereas like church here, the way that we work is everyone's 
Everyone's allowed. Everyone's welcome. No matter who you are or what you think or what you believe or what religion you are, whatever, you are welcome here and we're glad you've come. Right? That's us. But the temple was pretty much the exact opposite. You were not allowed. Whoever you were, it was designed to keep you out. And so between the court of the Gentiles and the bit where the Jews were allowed to go, there was a wall about four or five feet high all the way around. And on the wall were these inscriptions. There was 13 of them all the way around. And we found a few of them and they're in like museums around the world. But there were these inscriptions all the way around. And they were in Hebrew and they were in Greek and they were in Latin so that everyone could read them. This is what it said. It said, no foreigner is to go beyond the wall and the plaza of the temple zone. Whoever is caught doing so will have himself to blame for his death, which will follow. It's like, welcome to the temple. That was the sign. If you come in here, we will kill you and it's your fault. Isn't that wild? This was the dividing wall of hostility. And here in Ephesians, Paul says that wall in Jerusalem wasn't just a physical wall in Jerusalem. Jews and Gentiles were divided and, and separated wherever they were, whether there was a wall there or not. And that wall in, in the Jerusalem temple symbolized the separation between Jews and Gentiles everywhere. But here he says, Jesus has destroyed the dividing wall between Jews and Gentiles. And he says, end of verse 14, in his flesh, in Jesus' flesh, he made of no effect the law consisting of commands and expressed in regulations so that he might create in himself one new man from the two resulting in peace. He did this so that he might reconcile both to God in one body through the cross and put the hostility to death by it. Now that is, that's a confusing couple of verses. What he says here is Jesus takes the two Jews, Gentiles, and he makes us one humanity in him, a new man, a new type of human, and he kills the hostility. When Jesus is crucified, when Jesus is killed, Jesus is killing. When Jesus is put to death, Jesus is putting to death, but he's not killing people, he's killing hostility. Again, just like a bizarre thought, Jesus kills the hostility between Jews, Gentiles, between anybody. When God reconciles us to himself, he also reconciles us to one another. We have been brought near. On the vertical between us and, us and God, we've been brought near to him, but we've also been brought near to one another. We've been reconciled to one another. And they both happen at the same time. Imagine it's, it's, like, it's like a triangle where you have like God at the top 
And then you've got Jews on one side, Gentiles on the other side, and they're like separate from each other. But as God reconciles them to himself, they get closer to each other. And as God reconciles them to himself, they also get reconciled to each other. That's how it works. When God reconciles you to himself, he also reconciles you to others. And so we were not brought into Israel. Like we haven't become Israelites. Jews and Gentiles both become another thing, a third thing. Non-Christian Jews, non-Christian Gentiles both become Christians. They both become part of a new humanity. And Paul wants us to see that in the new people of God, we're all equal. We're all on the same footing. So he says, verse 17, when the Messiah came, he proclaimed the good news of peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. Right? He preached, proclaimed peace to both those who were far away, that's Gentiles, and those who were near, that's Jews. It's, it's like the parable of the prodigal son that we looked at a few weeks ago where, you know, there was the younger son and the older son. Older son stayed home, stayed near, and the younger son went far away. And both of them had to be reconciled with the father. Both of them were out of step with him and needed peace. And it's the same thing. Those who were far away, Gentiles, those who were near, Jews, both of them, needed the good news of peace. And so verse 18, for through him, we both have access by one spirit to the father. That is both of us have the same access. It's not different for Jews and different for Gentiles. We're on the same footing. We access God by the same one spirit. Even though we might have nothing in common. You know, maybe we're here, I like KFC, maybe you like Maccas, maybe you're vegan and I like steak, you like exercise, I don't, you like camping, I'm normal. <laughs> we got nothing in common with each other, except we have the Lord Jesus, and so we have everything in common. And it doesn't matter who you are, if you come in the name of Jesus, then you're one of us. It doesn't matter what race you are, what, what heritage you have. It doesn't matter if you're rich or you're poor or you're male or you're female or you're young or you're old. None of those things matter. We have Jesus in common and so we have everything in common. That's Paul's point here. Jesus' death really does break down all the barriers between us. Whatever it would be that would cause conflict between us, Jesus has destroyed it. All those things don't really matter anymore. If you're a sinner forgiven by Jesus, then you belong to me and I belong to you. And I am responsible to love you and you are responsible to love me. But this is, this is who we are. We've been brought 
to Jesus, brought near, brought together. And then amazingly, in the final section here in chapter two, we've been brought into God's presence. From verse 19, Paul says, so then you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household. Fellow citizens with the saints, with God's people. We're on the same team, but more than that, we're not just on the same team. We're part of the same family. We're part of God's household. We're we're brothers and sisters. If God is my father and he's your father, and if Jesus is my brother and he's your brother, that means we're part of the same family. Same father, same brother. Or as Paul would say, we're members of God's household. We're family and we belong to each other in all of our dysfunction and in all of our difference. And when we read things like this, you know, members of God's household or we hear that we're family, it's easy to jump to some idealized vision, you know, of what that means. It's, it's easy to conjure up some kind of fantasy world squeaky clean, rose-tinted, like an old-school sitcom family, like everything's perfect. And if your family is or was always clean and tidy and well-dressed and harmonious and under control, then more power to you, you know, that's great. But I reckon for most of us, our families aren't like that. I would guess for most of us, we're messy, and noisy and imperfect and varying degrees of hostility and conflict and disagreements and hurts. But amongst all of that, in the family, you, you belong and you're trying to love each other and you're trying to work it out. And that's, that's the picture. We belong to God's household. And so God the Father is perfect and Jesus, our brother, is perfect. But besides those two, the rest of us are off the charts dysfunctional. And don't, don't imagine, don't expect anything less. But we belong and we're trying to love each other and we're trying to work it out. But as well as that, family also helps us to think about maybe the classic question. I don't know if you've ever thought about this or had someone ask you, do I have to go to church to be a Christian? You ever thought about that? Someone ever asked you that? Do, I, do you have to go to church to be, to, be a, to be a Christian? Well, I think that's like asking, do I have to go to family lunch to be part of the family? It's just like, what? Doesn't even make sense. Going to family lunch isn't what makes you a part of the family. If you're a member of the family, then you're a member of the family. And going to family lunch doesn't make you a member of the family. And not turning up to family lunch doesn't mean that you somehow stop being a member of the family. It's just not how families work. And so in the same way, Coming to church doesn't make you a Christian. Maybe you've come to church for your whole life. Maybe you've come to this church for your whole life. Coming to church doesn't make anyone 
a Christian. It's just not how it works. It's, it's just like how being at, at Macca's doesn't make you a cheeseburger. It's just not how it works. And if you don't go to family lunch, then of course you're still part of the family. But if you can go to family lunch and you don't, then that means there's something dysfunctional going on, right? If, if you can go to family lunch, but you just don't, it means there's something wrong because families that are healthy hang out with each other and do stuff with each other. They, they be with each other. That's what a healthy family looks like. And so in the same way, you don't have to go to church to be a Christian. But if you can and you don't, it means there's something dysfunctional going on. If you can, but you just don't, it means there's something wrong. That's not healthy. Families love each other and they help each other and they hang out with each other, even imperfect ones. And so one reason why we gather is because we're family. But as well as being family, Paul has one more image, one more picture in mind to describe us. Verse 20, he says, we're built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. He's quoting here from Isaiah chapter 28. In a building, and especially in a temple, you had something that was called a cornerstone. The cornerstone was the first stone that they'd put, and it was the one where they would line up every other stone in line with it. And it was the stone that took the most weight and so kind of locked the building into place. That was the cornerstone. Back in the 90s, archaeologists found some of the foundations some of the foundation cornerstones of the Jerusalem temple. And the biggest one was almost 17 meters long, a single stone, 17 meters long, it was three and a half meters tall and almost four meters wide, a single stone, that's massive. And here, Paul says that Jesus is our cornerstone. He was the first stone to be put. He takes most of the weight and he locks the rest of the thing into place. He says, verse 21, the whole building being put together by him grows into a holy sanctuary in the Lord. God's people, his family are his temple. The household is the house. And yes, we're still under construction. There's like scaffolding all around. But we're the place where God makes his presence obvious in the world. And then he says, the gathering of the Ephesians and our pit town gathering here, the Savo, we're like a little mini version of that. He says it in verse 22. You also are being built together for God's dwelling in the spirit. Right? We, not the building, we 
as a people, we're being built together as his temple. Right? This building, it's nice enough as it is, but this, this is not God's house. This is not God's temple. This is just a rain shelter. That's all, that's all this is. It just helps us not to get sunburned. That's all it is. It's, it's us. We are God's house. We, you, you and me. We're his temple. We are where his spirit dwells. And so us Gentiles have gone from being Christless and homeless, and promiseless and hopeless and godless to being in Christ, members of God's family, we've received every spiritual blessing and a guaranteed inheritance, a firm hope, and we've been brought near to God. And all this has happened through the blood of Jesus. In him, we've been reconciled to God and we've been reconciled to one another. In Christ, he himself is our peace. And so we gather as God's family and we belong because we're family. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the Lord Jesus. Thank you that in him he has... Uh, brought us back to you and brought us back to each other and that in him he has destroyed the dividing wall of hostility. Father, we pray for each one of us that you would help us to feel and to know that we belong as part of your household, part of your family, being built into your temple. And Father, we do pray that you would help us to continue to love and, and struggle to work it out amongst ourselves, dysfunctional and challenged as we are. Father, help us to love each other as family. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.